Hi, happy Saturday. It's the Saturday show. So maybe you were only verging on happiness. Maybe you were happy but not go lucky. The Saturday show will let you go into that space of luckiness. On the Saturday show, we bring you one from the vaults and one from the week. We're not going to do that. We're going to bring you two from the week and one will be entirely new. So we had Melissa DeRosa on the show. She was Andrew Cuomo's top aide arguably, and I'm going to say it's a really strong argument, the most powerful non-elected official in New York State during the tenure of Andrew Cuomo. And then perhaps you heard things went south for Mr. Cuomo, but she's out with the book. And in our two-part interview this week, we talked about the pandemic. We talked about nursing home counts. We spent pretty much a whole show on Tuesday talking about the sexual harassment allegations and scandal. But what about power? I just wanted to talk to her about what she saw and her assessment of how power is really used and wielded. So we have a whole new chunk from someone who is right there as power was being wielded. And I think it's actually really insightful. And it will probably, if you're on the fence, just like you were on the fence of happy-go-luckiness, it will probably disabuse you of naive notions of how things actually get done. Okay. And then the other one from the week was a Monday commentary, I call them spiels, about the black and white racial wealth gap. I also talk about the Hispanic racial wealth gap. I saw Since recording it, I saw a second statistic that touches upon what I shall be speaking about in the commentary. I call them a spiel that we're going to play. So early on, I gave uh, the national average wealth is 1.1 million. Woohoo! And then... We disclose that average is a really bad way to calculate wealth. You should go by median because very rich people throw things. So what I found was our assessments of the wealth of black families, the median number that we're talking about, which is around $50,000. If you took the average wealth of black families, it's about $340,000. So that shows you just how averages don't really give you the full picture. However, the average racial wealth gap between black and white Americans is not the 10 to 1, or as I talk about the 6.5 to 1. It's about the 3 to 1 ratio. And here's another, I don't know if it's a fun fact, it's a do-what-you-will-with-it fact. It's how averages don't often tell the full story. If we were to reclassify Elon Musk as an African-American, because, you know, he is technically, though certainly not black, and we were to take his over $200 billion and add it to the pool of all African-American net wealth, the average net wealth of African-Americans would go from something like $340,000 to above $360,000. Quite a bump, just based on one guy, Elon Musk. Although, you know, I'm sure many listeners are saying, you know, the whites can keep them. Enjoy both of these segments. On average, they're excellent. On median, they're, you know, pretty good. Give me your assessment of the success of Andrew Cuomo's last term as governor. In some ways, it was his greatest work he's ever done. I mean, when COVID hit in March of 2020, 
And the world was in such dire need of leadership. And not, again, like the world, not just the city, not the state, not the country. The world was in such dire need of leadership. He really stepped into that void. And he got a lot of people through, I think, what was one of the most traumatizing periods of time in the last hundred years for most Americans. And so, and he literally mobilized field hospitals, PPE, testing sites. We created a blueprint for the rest of the country to follow. He was making tough, decisive choices, step, step, you know, standing up to Donald Trump on the right, but also standing up to the Democrats on the left when they weren't delivering the aid that we needed. So I think in so many ways, his last term was his finest hour, which is what makes the last year of his time in office so tragic. You mentioned PPE and a couple tangibles, but other than the rhetorical, give me two or three bullet points of tangible things he did that others didn't or that he did in opposition to other politicians that truly benefited his constituents and maybe the country. Well, during COVID, what we, not to get too into the weeds, and I do write about this in the book a little bit, but what our greatest fear was that we were going to become Italy that the hospital system was gonna collapse. And that wasn't some far afield fear, it was something that was really real. Elmhurst, which is a hospital in New York City, was on the verge of collapse right at the very beginning of the pandemic. We didn't realize COVID had been running rampant through New York City through January, February. Our first identified case was March 1, and within three weeks, Elmhurst was on the verge of collapse. And he sort of stepped into that void and took over what is a hospital system totally disparate, public, private, all across the state, every single one of them acting as their own fiefdom. And he, within, boom, 48 hours, essentially turned it into one singular hospital system where we were tracking in real time where staff were, what the patient intake was, what the ICU need was, what the intubation need was, what the PPE shortages were, and seamlessly moving between the hospitals all of those different things so that we were able to deal with patient intake and make sure that none of the hospitals would collapse. And that was something that had never been done before in this country and that other states sort of modeled off of what we did. And in those very early days, I would say that if we hadn't done that, we would have seen people dying like they did in Italy, needlessly in hallways because we didn't have enough beds. Your analysis of this in the book, um, specifically Elmhurst, the governor called Larry Schwartz, Dr. Zucker, two uh, chief advisors on this, and me, you, Melissa DeRosa, into his conference room, quote, why am I reading that people are dying because of capacity issues at Elmhurst where there are thousands of free beds in other hospitals nearby, he, Cuomo, asked, exasperated. They don't talk to each other, Larry explained matter-of-factly. There's no centralized coordination system to ensure individual hospitals aren't overwhelmed. Well, there will be now, the governor said. I take that as accurate, and that's probably a huge part of this. But I do have to say, as I was reading this, knowing what I know now, having just interviewed uh, Jonas Sarah and Bethany McLean from The Big Fail, the reason they weren't talking wasn't just uh, logistical incompetence. There is an underlying funding issue here, and Elmhurst is a hospital that doesn't make a lot of money on patients, and patients like NYU Langone and some of the three top hospitals do. So I don't know if that needed to be in the book, but... Am I right in that analysis? It wasn't just, oh, they're not talking to each other. There were huge financial disincentives for richer hospitals to take some of these patients. Well, look, the other thing is, yes, I, I totally concede that point. But the And the other issue is, as we know, COVID hit harder in the areas of the city and the areas in the country that are the most financially strained, where the most yes, vulnerable populations yes. in, are, disproportionately hit the yes. black and brown communities. 
And Elmhurst is a public hospital that was serving an underserved population. It was sort of the perfect storm. But but the reality is, had the hospitals been talking to each other, had there been a centralized system, which I don't fault Elmhurst for, it's not their fault, it has never existed before, they could have said, we're reaching capacity, we need these people, you know, and then you send ambulances to different hospitals. It's They, they literally, the hospital system operates as a fiefdom. And there's the private hospitals, as you just said, some of the wealthier ones that operate on a totally separate plane than these underserved, strained um, hospitals that serve the public se- the public side of things. And so we're getting them all to work together, issuing executive orders, banning things like elective surgeries in order to make way to double, triple beds in some of these hospitals. These are things that were never been done before. I mean, it was literally like a wartime situation. Did you, in uh, achieving what the administration achieved, it wasn't just hard because we had this once in a century pandemic. It was hard for all the reasons that governing is hard. So did you have to throw elbows? Did you have to step on toes? Did you have to punch people in the nose or threaten to do so? Yeah. I mean, look, people don't like to hear that side of it, but that <laughs> that's the way, you know, it happens. The guy, I write in the book, um, the governor at one point when we couldn't get ventilators, because it was literally an international arms race. And at that point, the health community was saying ventilators could make the difference between life and death. We now know otherwise in a you know, crazy sort of retrospective. But at that point, everyone thought the ventilators were the whole key. And when ventilators before pre-pandemic were five grand a ventilator, all of a sudden they're 30, 40, 50, 60 grand a ventilator. International arms race, they're all made in China. China's not letting them out of their country. The governor's directive is get every ventilator. I don't care how much it costs. You know, we're not going to put a price on life. And at one moment, you know, the governor says to all of us, the crisis is in the city. It's not upstate right now. We've got to do an executive order to get all of the unused ventilators from the upstate hospitals down to the city where the problem is so that at least we can pull the resources that we have while we're trying to get more and stockpile more. And I write in the book that there was a hospital executive who refused to do it. And the governor got on the phone and was like, I will fucking pull your operating license myself. Like, I will end your hospital, essentially. And, you know... Works like a charm. Sometimes you have to do that. I mean, you know, I I recount fights I had with my old friend, Elise Stefanik, who was a middle school classmate of mine who I remained incredibly close with up until 2020. Our friendship completely came to an end as a result of an argument that we had because I believe she was trying to politicize the pandemic and turn upstate against downstate. Kushner and I came to blows on multiple occasions. I mean, and I recount those conversations. So yeah, look, everyone, it's going along, getting along is great. It's nice to be nice. The reality is politics ain't beanbag and your job is to deliver for the people. And sometimes that means you, you know, making the best of a lot of bad choices. Yeah. And give us a sense of what you were doing. I mean, I'll tee you off with an anecdote, but you could fill it in any way you want. And I'm not just talking about the 3.45 a.m. wake up time every day and all the long hours and becoming an expert because you had to in these uh, fields. By the way, uh, becoming an expert, the fact that you didn't start off as such was used against you at certain points in press coverage. But you, you called the head of the nurses union when the first nurse died of COVID. Uh, and said, give me the information about this nurse's family. I'm going to call her on behalf of the governor. And then the union head said, well, you're going to have to call everyone. And you said, I know. Did you? Did you call all the nurses who died? It seems, it seems impossible. 
I, I, there's no way I touched every single family, but I did my best in those first few weeks to call as many as possible. And it was the thing that I did at the end of every day. I would, well, it wasn't the last thing I did. I was certainly working much later than that. But at the end of the day, I would ask my assistant to help facilitate getting the contact information for the families of the healthcare heroes who died. And I would call their brother, sister, mother, whoever the next of kin was, and just say on behalf of the governor, on behalf of the state, thank you, you know, your family member didn't die in vain. And I can't tell you how crippling those conversations were to hear that raw pain on the other end of the line. And when you were working in the environment and we were working 24 seven for this prolonged period of time, it really, really dro drove home for me the importance of the decisions that we were making and how every piece of PPE we could track down, every ventilator we could buy, every hospital bed we could secure, that our performance mattered, that government mattered. And it was the hardest part of every day. As I write in the book, I would hang up the phone and literally lay down on the floor of my office and just sob and let myself sort of feel the sadness and then get back up and time to go back to work. How many such calls would you say you made? I would say in those first couple of weeks, I was north of 60. I'm going to play a clip of uh, Not Your Favorite Person. This is New York Magazine's Rebecca Traister. She was on The Brian Lair Show after, I think it was the day Andrew Cuomo resigned. And she's not your favorite person because she put together uh, some of the most influential pieces alleging sexual harassment against him. The book details your problems with those. But this is on exactly what we've been talking about, the issue of governance. I remember hearing it and wanting a forceful follow-up or some specifics. It's about a minute. Let's listen to that. I will say that to absorb that narrative, like, like he got things done, is to absorb something that we, to accept uh, a framework that we have simply been taught from birth, which is that politics is a hard knuckled game and you gotta be tough. And, and, and keep in mind that all of this is very tied up with ideas about masculinity and particularly white masculinity, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that all of this happens within, uh, you know, a, a white patriarchy, a white capitalist patriarchy. Um, but I actually, I think Cuomo is a test case for like, wait, can we try to disentangle our ideas um, about what effective power is? And that again, this is, this goes back to very old ideas about if you want to be appreciated as a leader, uh, you have to be tough. And I think we have to really retrain our brains to disentangle um, the idea of effective leadership or even really toughness. Yeah, so I'll stop it there. But what are your thoughts? Do we need to disentangle our brains about what it means to be an effective leader or a tough person? Look, I think that it's nice to sit on high and write pieces for New York Magazine and opine on the radio and never get in the arena. And the reality is that Right now, you've got Kathy Hochul in New York. I know you've got a national show, so people necessarily listening don't know, know anything about her, but she sort of came in as the anti-Cuomo. I'm going to mm -hmm. do everything un-Cuomo. I'm not going to be like him. And the proof is in the pudding. I'm sorry. I mean, we have a migrant crisis in New York City. No one has taken charge. No one has you know, stepped up in a leadership role. They should have been in Joe Biden's face from day one saying, this is a federal responsibility, migration. Even though we're all Democrats, you've got to fund the problem. You've got to manage the problem. Your job is to deliver for your constituents. Right before Andrew Cuomo became governor, David Patterson was governor in New York, a Democrat. 
Democrats had decisive control of the state Senate and the state assembly. They put marriage equality on the floor and it went down six Democrats voting against it. Andrew Cuomo becomes governor the next year. Republicans in charge of the Senate by four votes. He gets marriage equality passed. It changes the civil rights movement on marriage nationwide. And he didn't do that by being a nice guy. He did it by being charismatic. He did it with, you know, sticks and carrots. He did it by twisting some arms. The ultimate result, I think, was worth what the tactic was to get there. This so, isn't... No. Go ahead. Sorry. No, ahead. I was just going to say, like, like, I think that it's one thing to be an academic and to preach from on high and to say everyone should be nice and we don't have to be tough. But... In politics, like if people think they can push you around, they will. And case in point, the current governor gets ruled on a daily basis by the legislature, by local elected officials, by the White House. And what good does it do the people of the state of New York? So to invalidate her claim, you'd have to find successful examples of uh, purely or mostly collaborative um, governance really working, and I struggle to find them. I know that Charlie Baker, as a Republican, had to work with Democrats in the legislature, but that's a lot different from pushing an entrenched person of a different party off what they perceive to be their uh, their interests in terms of getting reelected, and to either use carrots or sticks to make them realize they need to change their vote. It's a lot harder to collaborate your way to big successes than to just say, you know, let's let's be um, let's inhabit the best examples or the best ideals of uh, groups working together. That's one. To invalidate that, you'd have to point to successful counterexamples, or you'd have to say, and the toughness didn't work. Now, you nodded to marriage equality. That's exactly what I was thinking about. This predates your work in the governor's office, but. If I said the name Mark Grisanti to you, do you know who that is? Of course. Of course you do, because you were there. Tell me about the example in terms of carrots and sticks. How did Governor Andrew Cuomo, who had to get at least a few votes from Republicans who didn't want to vote for gay marriage, what did he do to convince Mark Grisanti, a Republican from upstate New York, to vote for gay marriage? You know, it's funny. I actually, I, as you noted, I wasn't there at the time, so I don't know specifically how he got Grisanti on board. Unfortunately, I do know Grisanti then lost his seat. He um, lost his seat and Cuomo promised him a judgeship, which is supposed to be oh so horrible, quid pro quo. But he knew that Grisanti was in danger and he said, don't worry if the worst that happens, I'm going to fight for you if you think that this will help and I'll campaign with you. And if my campaigning doesn't work or turns against you, I'm going to give you a judgeship. And so it's seen as dirty politics, but Mark Grisanti's a judge in upstate New York. And I would guess he knew what he was getting into and doesn't, uh, doesn't regret what he did. I mean, and look, I'm not comparing Andrew Cuomo to 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 Lincoln, but how do you think Lincoln got slavery done? I mean, it was that famous line where he's like, get us the lobbyists from Albany to help flipping votes. And he literally was buying people off and twisting arms and threatening people. And I'm not saying that that, that is the perfect model, but unfortunately, like for those of us who have gotten our hands dirty, for those of us who have been in politics and government, like... This isn't a people just do the right thing because it's the right thing. There's all kinds of influences that impact how elected officials behave. There's outside money. There's what their constituents want. There's longstanding relationships. And sometimes you have to use various tactics in order to get people to move on various things. And so, again, I think that I think that there's a difference between academics and people who sit in an ivory tower and say, you know, we shouldn't be tough and we shouldn't have to be tough. 
Um, and again, I would just, I'd love to see an example of someone who's getting anything done politically or governmentally that hasn't demonstrated some fortitude at some point. And now the spiel. How rich is the average American family? They're worth over a million dollars. Yes, indeed. And that, my friends, tells you the limits of averages as a way of understanding how real life is lived. Let's talk instead of the average, which is skewed by your Musks and your Gateses. Let's talk about the median American family. You know, half or above this number, half or below that number. And the median American family holds 193000 in net worth. That's pretty good. Every three years, the Federal Reserve releases its survey of consumer finances. And from 2019 to 2022, America did very well. Remarkably well, given that you knew this, right? There was a pandemic. You saw that one, right? And a recession. Median wealth went down a lot during the two-year span of the Great Recession from 2007 to 2009, not so with the pandemic recession. And of course, stimulus checks were a big part of the reason why. But stimulus checks aren't just cotton candy, just not to be recorded in the wealth that was kept. Many people did wind up investing those checks. In fact, more people invested in the stock market than ever have before. It was the biggest rise in stock investing of any three-year period. But it was progress among specific groups that was most heartening, as Marketplace reported. According to the Fed's survey of consumer finances that came out this week, American households saw a record 37 percent rise in net worth between 2019 and 2022. That trend was particularly pronounced among black households whose wealth grew by 61 percent and Hispanic households whose wealth grew by 47 percent. Now, since white families were at a much higher starting place, 10 times the wealth of black families in absolute terms, whites added more dollars to their nest eggs and their worth than black families did. But the gap, widely expressed in so many places, and you probably read this stat, that white people have 10 times the wealth of black people, that's not true anymore. It's six to seven, closer to six times the wealth. And so we should call that progress. And by the way, white people earning less in general, that is not the solution for black people making more or any other people making more. So a couple points. A, all ethnicities are similarly buffeted and benefited by the macro economy. Not exactly all in line. That Great Recession that we lived through really did hurt white families a lot more than it hurt black families. And the racial wealth gap came down in a way that actually wasn't good for really anyone in society. But the other thing I wanted to point out is the path to the greatest flourishing for the black community or anyone is simply to grow wealth. And during the pandemic, black families grew wealth. This clearly surprised or would surprise many experts, the kind of experts we turn to to contextualize the issue of the racial wealth gap. I went back, I looked up a few outlets that defined and epitomized our thinking on the wealth gap. Here was the Brookings Institute in 2020, quote, using data from the Survey of Consumer Finances, that's this very survey that I'm talking about, 
for 2019, we find that the black-white wealth gap persisted heading into the COVID-19 pandemic, leaving black households with far fewer resources to weather the storm. That's not untrue, but it's decidedly pessimistic, I think designed to get you to conclude they're going to come out of the pandemic worse off, certainly worse off than whites, not really the case. Rand was just as pessimistic as Brookings. They wrote this, and it came out in the Rand Review just a few months ago, but before the latest numbers that I'm quoting came out, they wrote, white Americans hold 10 times more total wealth than black Americans. The median black household in America has about $24,000 in savings, investment, home equity, and other elements of wealth. The median white household, around $189,000, a disparity that has worsened in recent decades. In the summer of 2020, as American cities echoed with protests following the murder of George Floyd, Researchers at Rand decided to take a closer look at America's black-white wealth gap. What would it take, they asked, to close the gap, to give black households the same opportunities that wealth affords many white households? And their answer, they quoted an expert as saying, quote, in 200 years, we could still have problems with racial wealth disparities that are equal to or worse than the problems we have today. I mean, we could, but in reality, four months later, it was revealed that we had a black-to-white racial wealth ratio lower than when those words were written. One last quote for me to convey to you, the Harvard Gazette from 2021, their unequal series. Consider that right now, the net wealth of a typical black family in America is about one-tenth that of a white family. A 2018 analysis of U.S. incomes and wealth concluded, quote, the historical data also reveal that no progress has been made in reducing income and wealth inequalities between black and white households over the past 70 years. Well, now that number isn't one twelfth, it's close to one sixth of net worth. That is something. Progress has been made, and also not the first time in 70 years. I don't actually believe that assessment, but it has gone up and down, and the gap has been bad. Now it's getting better. I doubt the pessimism of such studies and writings that I convey to you, I doubt that will generally abate. And it is true, in absolute terms, the gap not only persists, it did get a little bit bigger in just pure dollar terms. And let's acknowledge that historically, the gap is due in large part to discrimination, denying education, denial of housing, or the ability for housing prices owned by black people to go up as much as those houses owned by white people, all have long been sources of wealth generation. Of course, one of the largest sources of wealth is inherited wealth, and single-parent versus two-parent households immediately cut in half the opportunity for inheritances. And since two-thirds of black kids today are born into a single-parent family, that does not argue well for future wealth generation possibilities that rely on inheritance, as many wealth generation possibilities do. By the way, everything I said is extremely controversial. It's not wrong at all. I just judge it controversial because I never read about any of that in the analysis that I dive into. What I do read, and this part is true, that single-parent families are because, in large part, to broader economic opportunities. The tax code seems to push a lot of black families into a single-parent status. However, there's a book going around, a celebrated book going around now about two-parent families. I'm going to have the author on. We'll talk more about that. So let me restate my thesis and then get on to something else. My thesis is 
A seemingly intractable problem lessened to an extent. Please note that that happened because few will. All these stories about wealth generation, the the papers came out five days ago. It's not as if the internet hasn't had a time to digest it and spit it out to you. Hey, the wealth gap has gotten smaller, but it has. My second thesis is that while the consideration of the black-white wealth gap is certainly worthy of our attention, so is the Hispanic-to-black wealth gap. Both are far below whites, and Asians, by the way, who are richer than whites, and they were examined for the first time fully in the report that just came out. But from 1998 to 2004, Hispanic households trailed black households in wealth. Then, for a few of these three-year study chunks, the two groups, basically the same. But since 2016, Hispanic wealth has been growing, growing faster than black wealth. Now, the average Hispanic family is $20,000 richer than the average black household. The white to Hispanic wealth ratio is only about four and a half to one. And by the way, there are more, almost 50% more Hispanics in the U.S. than African Americans. So again, another picture that's getting better, clearer, better to look at. The black-white gap is improving a little bit less than the Hispanic-white gap, but it is improving overall. It's not hopeless and it's not pointless to note these trends. Also, we should emphasize that government policy, i.e. the pandemic assistance, really has a role in wealth. And let us, I say, dutifully report the numbers and convey the progress. We need to invest in really good charts to show how big the gap actually is. But we also need to invest in really accurate narratives that communicate the fact of progress and the story other than hopelessness. And that's it for the Saturday show. Thank you to Corey Wara, our producer. And Joel Patterson, our senior producer, talk to you Monday.